Good morning. I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible, find 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're going to do all of chapter 3 this morning. So we're going to talk about marriage, husbands, wives, submission, and authority, uh, all of life, a life of suffering, getting blessings from God and blessing others, and perhaps the most difficult passage to interpret in the entire New Testament, which is 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. So not much, right? Uh, just a little bit of things to cover. So uh, let's get after it. My words in all of this do not have power, but God's word does have power. So let's read his word and see what he has for us this morning. First Peter 3, starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we are needy this morning to hear from you. And so as we gather together to read your word, to study it, we pray that you might open our eyes by the power of your spirit and transform us more and more into the image of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So if you're taking this if you're taking notes this morning, we're talking about how to live as exiles. Uh, this whole series is about standing firm as an exile in a place that's not our home. And so in three uh, big areas, we're going to see um, how might we live. So first, we see life at home. If you're taking notes, the first point, life at home. Now, it goes without saying that if you're a youth in the room this morning, you are not married. And so you may think that these verses are not very important to you right now. And the fact is, we need to be clear on this, God has not promised you a husband or a wife. If you're a guy, he has not promised you a wife. If you're a woman, he's not promised you a husband. But one day, many of you will be married. The, the natural flow of life is that we find a mate, we get married, we enjoy the blessings of marriage until death do us part. So while you may not immediately think this passage is for you, remember that all Scripture is profitable. Profitable for you. And there are six verses for wives and one verse for husbands, but there's plenty of application for both. So, ladies first. Peter begins this passage, girls, by using the word likewise, signaling that he's continuing to speak about submission to authority. We learned all about that last week. We learned about authority in the world, authority in our government, things like that. In this case, it's a wife submitting to the leadership and authority of her husband. Now, let's be clear, Peter is not talking about all women submitting to all men. This is strictly about the dynamics in the home of husbands and wives. And he uses an example of a believing wife and an unbelieving husband. The husband's lack of conversion, his lack of faith in Jesus, 
does not necessarily free her from this beautiful design of authority and submission, of leadership among the husband. Through respectful conduct, Peter says, women can be the means that God uses to bring their unbelieving husbands to faith in Jesus. That's what he means when he says that they might be one without a word. So in a real sense, this is application not just for women who become wives to husbands who are not believers, which I hope and pray is not your uh, strategy uh, for evangelism. Um, let's just think about that for just a moment. If, if I'm trying to live my life in, in following Christ and being obedient to Jesus, and I say, well, I see this guy, I see this girl, they're really nice, they're really cute, they don't follow Jesus, I can save them. This is probably not a good evangelistic strategy, all right? Because you don't have the power to change the hearts of men and women. God has that power. But if you are in a marriage, Peter says the gospel that you believe is in a sense proved by your conduct, how you live out obedience to God's word. Peter moves on to talk about how wives might be adorned, right? So he says, don't be adorned, verse Three, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. So what does true beauty look like for a godly woman? Peter says it's not primarily external. So when we think about what it means to be beautiful in our world, in our culture, we often immediately go to what we see. What do people look like? Peter says It's not primarily external. The world is saying one thing. The scriptures are saying another thing. In the first century, braided hair, gold jewelry, and fine clothing were the indicators of money and influence. So if you wanted to be seen as important, if you wanted to be noticed, if you wanted to be regarded as influential or a person of high status, and you were a woman, you would braid your hair, you would wear gold jewelry, and you would wear fine clothing. It was external. It was superficial. And this is not, as as some would argue, a command for girls not to be able to wear jewelry or to not braid your hair. Because if we're going that route, you also are probably apparently not allowed to wear clothes. And that's not what Peter's getting at. What Peter is saying is that your primary concern for what it means to cultivate beauty in your life is not something that you think about when you think about what you see. It's not something external. It's internal, what Peter calls imperishable beauty, hidden in the heart. He talks about women having a quiet and gentle spirit. Now, this does not mean that women are to be docile and passive and have no opinions. I am married to a beautiful woman, and she has very good, wise, strong opinions that I need to hear. So for her, a gentle and quiet spirit isn't just not saying things when I think about doing something stupid. Instead, don't think of gentle and quiet spirits as something demeaning or something that invokes weakness. No, think about Jesus, who, when he is asked what he is like, describes in Matthew 11 as gentle and lowly in heart. These qualities are Christ-like qualities. Peter uses Sarah as an example. Abraham had a wife named Sarah, And as they wandered through going to the promised land, uh, she heard some things. God said some things to Abraham. Abraham did some things that caused her to wonder at times if following this man was the right move. I mean, she heard Abraham hearing from God talking about how she was going to have a child when she was 90. And so she laughed. 
And we see this. She calls him Lord in the book of Genesis because she laughs and wonders, how is it that God will allow my Lord to give me children? But she was faithful. And her holiness and her hope in God shined through her actions and attitudes to follow the man that she married. So then, girls, the application for you is to cultivate not external beauty as your primary effort, but internal beauty, inner beauty. Don't think that holiness, a life full of hope in God, a a quiet and gentle spirit, respect, pure conduct, and the like, don't think that those things will just be downloaded into your soul when you get married. If you want to be that kind of wife when you become married, these are things you must cultivate now. You're growing into the kind of woman you will be one day, girls. And my hope and my prayer is that you're growing into the godly woman that God has called you to be today. Boys, you're next. First, we have to see the application implied from verses 1 through 6. If women are likewise to submit to the authority of their husbands, that begs the question, are you the kind of husband they want to submit to? Like, are you, are you the kind of man who is holy and godly and wise and good and caring, full of honor and truth and love and servant-heartedness? Are you growing into a godly leader? The same kind of application to cultivate inner beauty is true for you, just as it is true for our sisters. What am I doing now? What are you doing now to cultivate in your heart and your mind and your soul godly qualities? that you'll be able to exercise humble authority and wisdom in such a way that a woman would not find submitting to your leadership as something to be bummed out about, but as something to delight in. This is God's beautiful design for husbands and wives. It's not something that we should be ashamed about. It's not something that we should say, oh, well, you know, if, if I was you know, general manager of the universe, and I was creating Adam and Eve and man and woman, I would have made them equal in every way, and, 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 and they would have the same roles and the same functions and the same opportunities, and they have the same thing. Well, that's, that's not how God designed it. And it's not up to us to, to sit over Scripture and to say, well, this is good, and this is kind of weird and kind of culturally outdated, but it's what we believe, so... No, we lean into what Scripture teaches as good and beautiful and from God and say, men are given the capacity to lead their homes and women are given the capacity to follow their husbands. And this is a beautiful thing, necessary, a a helping relationship. God says to Adam in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper fit for him. And you think, well, it's all about the man and God's going to make this helper, this woman, this wife. That word helper is more used to describe God than anyone else in the Bible. That that term, helper, is not a sign. It's not a word of inferiority. It's a a word of fittingness. That these two people, this man and this woman, are meant to be together. Helping and being helped. Loving and receiving love. Honoring and being honored. But men, take note. You are not blessed to make every single little decision just because you are the man of the house. You don't have the the right or responsibility to manipulate and micromanage and domineer over your family. But you are held responsible before God for your family. Now, that's super exciting and also really terrifying. 
I think I've told you this before. When I was um, getting married, our wedding day was fantastic. Wonderful day, low nervousness, great time with my groomsmen. We're hanging out. Whitley's hanging out with her bridesmaids. It's fantastic. Everything's great. I'm just so excited about the afternoon. We're going to get married that evening. And uh, haven't been worried, haven't been anxious. It's been great. God was very kind. And then we um, took some pictures, but we didn't look at each other because we're kind of old-fashioned like that. And um, at the end of it, I got a gift from Whitley, and it was a Bible. And uh, it was a wonderful Bible, a Bible I still use, still have. And in the front of that Bible, she wrote a little note and said, May this be the center of our lives and our marriage. And at that moment, I remembered what I have known for a long time, which is I am now entering into a covenant with Whitley, and I am going to be responsible before God for her. And then I started freaking out. Like, I don't know if I could do this. <laughs> like, this is a big task. This is a big deal. But God gives grace. Women are not passive with no opinions, with no opportunities to serve and to bless their husbands through correction and direction. Instead, they are actively working alongside her husband as he leads the family. So, let me just give you an example. Um, my parents, uh, there is no doubt who leads our home. It's my dad. My dad is a, is a good man, a hardworking man. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. Um, my mom is the primary breadwinner of my family growing up. She worked in banking. She did uh, home. Uh, she did real estate. Um, my dad was a hardworking firefighter. He had some other odd jobs, uh, paramedic, things like that. Um, and so that, that, that dynamic of, well, the, she makes more money, so doesn't that mean she has more power? That was not true in my family. It was clear that there was this relationship that was complementary of one another. And, and in my own marriage today, I lean on heavily my wife to, to lovingly encourage me and challenge me and, and direct me when I'm thinking of things that we ought to do or thinking of ways that we ought to be as a family. But at the end of the day, I have to make the decision. And Whitley has seen fit in the providence of God to say, trust your judgment. Now, usually that's often tempered by her wisdom. I need that. You need that. We, we need that in our relationships and especially in our marriages. So boys, are you cultivating that kind of life now? Now, verse 7. Look at it again. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Live with your wives in an understanding way, boys. This means that you are called to serve and to love and to know and to lead your wife towards Jesus. And we recognize that husbands and wives see things differently sometimes, but that's no excuse to dominate. That's no excuse to domineer. That's no excuse to, to flex over your wife in such a way that intimidates her. That's what Peter means when he says we're to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. It doesn't mean she's inferior. It doesn't mean she's less intelligent. It doesn't mean she's less able. Peter is literally saying, you could destroy her if you wanted, usually. But your authority that's given to you by God does not give you the license to harm her, to bully her, to abuse her, to dominate her, to intimidate her in any way. 
Your wife is equal to you in honor, in worthiness, in dignity, and what it means to be an image bearer. And that's exactly what Peter says, because women and men, wives and husbands are co-heirs in the grace of life. They receive the same salvation. And here we find a huge, terrifying warning. This is part of the price of leadership, young men. Peter says to follow these commands so that your prayers may not be hindered. I mean, think about what that means. Our disobedience to this text can hinder our prayers. Like if I'm dishonoring my wife and I'm domineering over her and I'm not loving her well, it seems to say God will not listen to me when I call for him. As we'll see in a bit, God is against those who do evil and failing to uphold the glorious picture of Christ and his bride by taking advantage of and harming your spouse will move the Lord to set his face against you. So, boys, girls, you're not married yet. But the character and holiness that you strive for now will be what you have when the time comes. So men, do you love and serve and honor those around you, men and women? Do you domineer or bully or manipulate to get your way? Girls, are you cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit? Are you humble and compassionate and longing for holiness? Or do you hope in God rather than the things of this world? Is your adorning internal or external? God is calling all of us to grow in these ways as we grow towards marriage. All right, second point. Not only do we look at life in the home, but number two, life in the world. Let's read this text together. A lot of this will be overlap from themes of last week, so we won't spend a ton of time here, but we do want to read the text. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you were zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, in this text, I think Peter is helping us with a, an overview on how do we live all of our life as exiles? How do we stand firm in our faith no matter our circumstances? He, he begins this section by saying, all of us ought to have unity of mind. That means not uniformity, not that we all think the same way about all the same things, but that we agree as brothers and sisters on what's most important, that we have unity in our mind of what's supreme. 
That we have sympathy for one another, brotherly love towards one another, a tender heart, which means that we have hearts that are full of kindness and full of compassion. And finally, a, a humble mind, minds that are teachable, minds that are agreeable, minds that know they have not learned everything yet. Now, remember from last week, we're called to live under the law of Christ not the law of the jungle. So we bless those even if they don't deserve it. We don't revile those who revile us. Why though? Why do we bless people when they don't deserve it? Why do we not respond in evil when those other people do evil against us? Well, look at verse 9. To this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter seems to think that if you live a life of blessing other people, you will receive blessing. So you are blessing others to be blessed. Our obedience as Christians has with it a great principle from this text. If you want to experience God's blessing, if you want to experience God's favor in your life, if you want to experience God's compassion in your life, then you must follow God's word in blessing others. Now, this is not prosperity theology. This is not if you sow in $1,000 to my ministry, God will bless you abundantly with millions of dollars. It's not materials that we're talking about. It's blessing. And what does it mean to be blessed? Well, not necessarily what the world thinks. The world thinks blessing is all just good things that you want all the time. Well, if I got all the things that I wanted all the time, I would not be a happy person because I often want things that are not good for me, right? I mean, I watched Rachel bring in that dozen donuts and I was like, it would be nice to eat that whole box. I want that. It seems good for me, but it would not be good for me. No, to be blessed by God is to give what God knows that you need, to be given that which brings you closer to him. God's blessing, here's the point, God's blessing may sometimes look like disappointment. It may sometimes look like suffering. It may sometimes look like hardship. It may sometimes look like pure joy. It may sometimes look like sorrow. But God's blessing are those things that God gives you, God puts in your life so that you will be brought closer to to him, that you'll be conformed more into his image. And if you are a Christian, what you want more than anything is to glorify God by reflecting His glory and being like Him. Peter quotes Psalm 34 to make this point, that God's care and His love, His eyes, His attention, they're squarely fixed on the righteous. And the good news is, student, that if you are in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you trust that He has died for your sins and has been raised to life, then you are righteous. It's by faith alone that you receive the righteousness of Jesus. And so if you are in Christ, God's affection and his attention and his care is on you. You can trust that. But before we came to Christ, we were evildoers. Before we came to Christ, God was set against us. We were children of wrath, Paul says. But now we have nothing to fear. Now there is no one who can ultimately do us harm because we are in God's care, because our good Father loves us and sets his affection on us. It doesn't mean we won't face suffering. It doesn't mean you won't face hardship. But we know and trust that the Lord of heaven is both over us and in us and with us 
wherever we go. Because of this massive truth, we ought to be prepared, Peter says, to give a defense for the hope that we have. So when you live your life full of deep-seated joy in the midst of crazy circumstances, the world will wonder, what is up with that girl? What is up with that guy? And before long, someone will come to you and say, what is this all about? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you believe the things that you believe? Why do you say the things that you say? Why do you treat those people the way that you treat them? And we give a defense. We defend our faith both by the life that we live and the words that we speak. And you need both. If, if, if you're defense is only a godly life without godly content, then they will never believe in him of whom they've never heard. But if all you do is speak and speak, but don't have a life that backs it up, your words will be hollow and untrustworthy. We need a godly life and godly words. Our conduct and our stated beliefs both defend the truth of the gospel hope that we have. Our life is totally in God's hands as a Christian. Following him, even when you're slandered or reviled or made to suffer, Peter says, is better. It's better. The riches of the world without Christ versus suffering in this world with Christ. Suffering is better because Christ is better. So what does our life in the world look like? How do we stand firm as exiles in the world? wherever we go, with happy confidence in the goodness of God and obedience to his word, no matter the circumstances, knowing, knowing that by being a blessing, we will enjoy God's blessing. That's the life that Peter has for us. That's the, it's the life that God has for us. All right, we come to land the plane Not only do we think about life at home this morning or life in the world, but number three, our life in Christ. Life in Christ. This is verses 18 through 22. I'm just going to preface this by saying we come to a passage that Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, says is the most difficult passage to interpret in the New Testament. So what's going on in these verses is hard to understand. It doesn't mean that it's not profitable for us. It doesn't mean it's not helpful for us, but it is hard to understand. To understand. So I'm going to read it. We'll talk about what's clear. We'll talk about what's not clear. So let's start in verse 18. <clears throat> for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So it makes sense, right? We're good? We're clear on that? There are some things that are clear, right? Verse 18 is mercifully clear. Christ suffered for our sins. This is good news. 
The righteous one was a substitute for the unrighteous ones. This is what we call throughout church history penal substitution. Substitution for a penalty. And it's a massively glorious truth that you and I as Christians should be so excited that we believe that Jesus took our place as a substitute and paid our penalty on the cross. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ brings us to God through his death on the cross. And through his death, we can be made alive. This is wonderful gospel truth. Verse 19 is where it goes off the rails. Because Jesus went and proclaimed this to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey in the days of Noah when God was being patient. What is happening here? First of all, was Jesus with Noah? But but Jesus is the God-man and he wasn't born until like like 1,500 years later. So, and he's proclaiming to spirits in prison. What prison is this? What the spirits are? There's a lot of questions. <laughs> There's a lot of questions. Let's just think about the text. Jesus went and proclaimed the good news that he has died for sinners. That he suffered for the unrighteous and has now brought them to God. This gospel proclamation, Jesus went and told of this good news of his triumph over the cross to the spirits in prison. These spirits formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. Okay, so back in the days of Noah, whoever these spirits are, they weren't obeying. And during that time, God judged the earth, right? Flood all over the world. And the only people spared was Noah and his family, eight people on the ark. So the questions are, who are these spirits? What is this prison? And when exactly did Jesus proclaim this victory to them? There are many plausible interpretations of how to reckon with this text. And we don't have time to go into great detail because I don't think that's the main point of Peter's passage. So we don't want to spend a ton of time on it, plus we don't have a lot of time. But I lean on this idea, and it should sound a bit familiar if you were with us last year when we went through the Apostles' Creed. I believe that this is talking about what Jesus did immediately after he died. So I'm understanding this text to mean that as when Jesus died on the cross, his body was hanging on the cross, but his soul went somewhere. It didn't stay connected to his body. Death separates the body from the soul, and Jesus really died. So Jesus descended into the place of the dead, the place where the spirits reside. And in that time, between his death and his resurrection, Jesus began to proclaim to those spirits, Jesus began to proclaim to the dead that what he has done was effective, that what he has done is good, that it really is finished. So when we think about the life of Jesus, we think about the Son of God in heaven descending to earth, putting on human flesh. This is what we call Christ's humiliation. He is humble. This is what Philippians 2 was talking about that Brother Al preached on last week. That his humiliation included his descent from heaven to the earth, his putting on human flesh, his bearing with the sins of other people, his being mocked and betrayed and deceived and beaten and arrested and falsely tried and and scourged and crucified. This humiliation 
But after he says it is finished, we begin what's called Christ's exaltation. That instead of descending down into humiliation, he is rising to be exalted. And the first thing that happens in Christ's exaltation is his proclamation to those who were already dead that what he did worked. That he really is the sinless lamb of God. He really is the son of David. He really is the one who took on the sins of the world. And to those who put their faith in the Messiah, this would have been an amazing encouragement. He really is the one they were believing on. He really was the one they had hoped in. But to those who were unrepentant, it would have been a terrible condemnation because they missed him. This this proclamation is not a second chance. This proclamation is also condemnation. It is a sentence and a promise for a further sentence that they will be judged one day. But specifically, I think the spirits in prison are those fallen angels who brought havoc on the earth in the time of Noah. And we don't have time to get into this. But my understanding of Genesis chapter 6, you can go back and read it, is that the sons of God met with the daughters of men and they brought havoc on the world and the world was increasingly corrupt. And I think there's good reason to believe that those sons of God in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 6, are angels. Those angels were destroyed, condemned, and now they are in prison awaiting God's final judgment. And Christ is proclaiming to them that he actually accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Those who brought havoc on the earth during the time of Noah, who were disobedient when his patience was going. Now, I know it's tantalizing for us to wonder what all this means, but I'm not sure it's the point of Peter's writing. His point is to show that Noah and his family were saved by being carried along through the waters of God's judgment. Right? So the waters in the flood is what God uses to judge the world. And the ark that Noah and his family were on was the vehicle that brought them salvation. They were carried along through judgment on this ark. And that leads to verse 21. Baptism is a similar sign of being carried along through judgment by Christ, by being carried along through judgment by the Lord's grace. Listen to Wayne Grudem talking about this phrase from 1 Peter 3. He says, The water of baptism is like the waters of judgment, similar to the waters of the flood and showing clearly what we deserve for our sins. So just stop there. When you're immersed in water, if you stay there long enough, it will not be good for you, right? Like you can't live underwater. And so to be plunged into the water symbolizes being plunged into death. Grudem continues, Coming up out of the waters of baptism corresponds to being kept safe through the waters of the flood, the waters of God's judgment on sin, and emerging to live in newness of life. Baptism thus shows us clearly that in one sense we have died and been raised again, but in another sense we emerge from the waters knowing that we are still alive and have passed through the waters of God's judgment unharmed. As Noah fled into the ark, so we flee to Christ, and in him we escape judgment. 
So then look at verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, we do not believe that water baptism saves you. So then, how do we get around 1 Peter 3.21 that says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you? What's going on? Water baptism does not save you since water baptism only removes dirt from the body. That's what Peter's saying here. Instead, Peter is saying that there is within baptism in the first century, there is an appeal to God for a good conscience. The only way you would get in the waters of baptism is by making this profession, this appeal to God. This is a profession of faith. And in that profession of faith, when you put your hope and your trust and your life in Christ, there is a real baptism that takes place, but it is not external. There is an internal baptism of the Spirit. It's what Ezekiel talks about when he says that he'll come and bring his Spirit and he'll, he'll wash you with clean water. He'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's that kind of cleansing, that kind of baptism. And that's what saves us, all possible through the resurrection of Jesus. So when you are baptized in water, you are not experiencing salvation as though you walk into the waters unsaved, you walk out of the waters saved. But when you get baptized, we're performing a kind of image for the world to see and for the Spirit to encourage us that what, what those waters symbolize has really taken place. You really did deserve death. You really did deserve to be buried in the grave because of your sin. You really did deserve God's judgment, but the Lord has carried you through to life. And so this Jesus, our Savior who gives life, has now ascended, Peter says, is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning with all authority, which brings us full circle. God has all authority. And here we see Jesus has all authority, which should let us into this big idea that Jesus is God. And he gives us life and blessing. And he empowers us to live faithfully in this world, whether in our homes or out in our jobs or at school or on our teams. Wherever we go, he guides us through his word and by his spirit. No matter at what comes our way, we can stand firm in him. And so my encouragement to you, as we spend just a couple of minutes in discussion, is for you to think about what it means to cultivate faithfulness and godliness in looking forward to one day perhaps being married. You should think about and ask questions about what it might look like in the world to suffer well and to be a blessing to people who may not deserve it. But on that third point, I know it's going to be hard to not get hung up on what in the world is going on in this passage. It's really hard to understand. I just don't even want to think about it. But I want you to think about one thing for sure. If you've been baptized, if you've come before a church like Lakeview or, or, or in Lakeview, many of you have been baptized here, think about what that baptism meant. And think about what that baptism still means. That when you wrestle 
with doubt, when you wrestle with hardship, when you wrestle with suffering and frustration, and you wonder, is God really there in my life? You can remember a time when you were baptized because you were confident that your hope and your faith and your life was squarely in Christ. And there was hundreds of people in the room who looked at you and heard your testimony or knew you from before and said, yes, that person has been changed by the Spirit of God and they need to be baptized to show the world that they've died with Him and have been raised to life. What a great encouragement for you every day of your life when you wrestle with heartache and frustration and doubt to remember your baptism and what it symbolizes that Christ has done. And for those of you who have not been baptized, as humbly and as kindly I can say, why not? Why not? Why, why have you not followed Christ's command to be baptized? Why, why have you not followed Christ's command to, to become a member of the body of Christ, visibly, tangibly, in a local church? Why, why have you not said, I, I want to show the world that I am Christ's, that I've died with him and I've been raised to new life with him? Friends, if you are a believer, there are not very many good reasons to wait on baptism. If you're confident in your faith in the gospel, my challenge and encouragement to you is as soon as possible, Enjoy the encouragement that your brothers and sisters who've been baptized now have for the rest of their life. That they, not only are they a part of a body of believers that they've committed their lives to, but they now have the encouragement of remembering. Not only do I remember going into the waters and coming out, but there's a whole church that remembers. There's a whole church that saw me and affirmed me and encouraged me by being there. Let me pray for you. We'll spend some time together. God in heaven, you are the King of kings with all authority. And you have seen fit to put different kinds of authority over us in this life. We pray that you would give us the grace to be faithful and obedient to all that you have commanded us. I pray for the men in this room that you would grow in us a sense of discontentment with the ways of the world and that we would instead strive for holiness that you would build up in us hearts that are brave and humble and kind, that we would lead as Jesus led through love and service, not through machismo and physical strength and intimidation. God, help us to be whole and holy. And if you see fit to bless us with wives, would we be faithful, godly leaders of our homes? Would we love and honor and serve our wives well. Pray for the women in this room, Lord, that you would cultivate in them holiness and a hope that is firmly fixed on you. That they would see that submission to a godly husband is not demeaning, is not a sign of inferiority, but is instead walking in your good design. And that companionship of husband and wife is a good thing. But Lord, more than desires for a husband, I pray that they would desire you and that you would cultivate in them gentle and quiet spirits, that imperishable beauty hidden in their hearts would be grown and caused to flourish. I pray that as we live our lives in the world, in our homes, at our jobs, at school, on our sports teams, wherever we go, Lord, 
we would be a blessing. And in so doing, receive your blessing. That you would give us the words to speak and the confidence to live out our lives in such a way that both of these things, our words and our actions, would be a defense to give people a reason for the hope that's in us. And Lord, we confess that your scripture is profitable and it is clear, but sometimes it is not easy. So God, give us the eyes to see and the humility to recognize that we do not know everything, but we know the one who does. He has spoken to us. And he has given us life in Christ. We thank you, Lord. It's all in your name we pray. Amen.